Well, uh, uh, today uh, we are going to be uh, studying more about emotional intelligence. And uh, I don't know if the presentation is up yet, uh, maybe not, uh, but there are um, uh, several uh, things. We heard a definition earlier today about uh, emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is our ability to know and understand our emotions and the emotions of others and respond to those emotions in a healthy way. And of course, that sounds pretty simple, uh, but there are, are, is a lot involved in this. And our behaviors powerfully influence our emotions but it's our thoughts that actually cause our emotions and behavior. Uh, and so first I want to look on some of the uh, behavioral uh, aspects uh, in improving emotional uh, intelligence. Uh, but first we're going to go into a little more details about uh, what it actually is. Aristotle says there are many ways to demonstrate anger and anyone can become angry. That's what? Easy. Easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not within everyone's power and that is not easy. Well, often we quote from philosophers we agree with, but I actually don't agree with that complete statement. What part do you think I not agree, that I do not agree with? It actually is within everyone's power once we know the principles of emotional intelligence. And this is one of the reasons why emotional intelligence has been shown to contribute more to successful and enjoyable living than even general intelligence does. Since emotional intelligence can be learned rather than inherited, it can be improved upon um, significantly. And uh, it's amazing how quickly it can be improved upon, even in standardized tests of emotional intelligence. Uh, we just completed a program on Monday. The average emotional intelligence for the people coming to our program was 89. Now, the average across the nation is 90, so normally a depressed and anxious group might be a little bit below average, not greatly below average, but a little bit. And uh, 89 was actually lower than we normally get. Normally it's about 96 coming to our program. So there were several that would be considered emotionally retarded in their EQ level. You know, in other words, they had EQs of 54 or 65. Uh, every 10 points is a standard deviation. But the average at the end of the program had gone up to 114. And that's well over... Uh, three standard deviations different, and that puts them up in the top 25 percentile of the nation. So not only are they leaving depression-free and anxiety-free, their emotional intelligence puts them up in a category where they can be truly uh, far more successful in the future. There are five components to emotional intelligence. One is knowing our emotions. That means being able to understand not only what we are feeling, but also why we are feeling that way. And the why can't be because of what you just said to me or because that person just cut me off in traffic. 
because that might be the, the activating event, but it's our thoughts about what was just said or our thoughts about that person that cut us off in traffic that are actually the real cause of our emotions. And so the first part of our program, we have to deal a lot with the self-awareness aspect of things. The good news is, and a lot of people see this as bad news at first, but the good news is it's our thoughts that cause our emotions and behavior. My thoughts cause my emotions and behavior. And a lot of people at first get upset at this because they're starting to recognize that that means that I'm responsible for my own emotions. But thank God it is our thoughts that cause our emotions and behavior because we can change our what? We can change our thoughts and we can change them into what is more true and accurate. And so knowing our emotions is critical. The second aspect is managing our emotions. People with low emotional intelligence are simply managed by their emotions. Moment by moment, day by day, they're being managed by their emotions. People with high emotional intelligence still have powerful emotions. The difference is they're managing those emotions. And of course, that has a bearing on what we talked about this morning in the area of self-control. The third aspect is recognizing emotions in others. It's not just about us. It's also about others, and our ability to recognize emotions in others is a part of emotional intelligence, as well as to empathize with others. And then the fourth aspect is managing relationships with others. And uh, we might call that social intelligence. And of course, this is one of the reasons why emotional intelligence is connected with happiness, because so much of our, our present, as well as future success and happiness has to do with appropriate, healthy relationships. And then the last part of emotional intelligence has to do with motivation. In the word emotion is another word. What is that word? Motion. If our emotions are based on what's true and accurate, it will powerfully motivate us to achieve our goals. And we've often run across people that might have high IQ, but they're not getting a good GPA. In other words, they're not excelling academically. If you have a high IQ and you're not excelling academically, is the problem your IQ? No, the problem is your EQ, your emotional intelligence, because you're not properly motivated. And so, uh, in fact, studies show that EQ is much more connected to GPA than IQ is. You can have someone of average intelligence, but because of their high motivation, they can get a 4.0. Uh, where uh, someone who has a lot of intelligence, high IQ may not uh, be near as successful in academics. Fortunately, increasing EQ has been shown to effectively or prevent depression, phobias, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, even anorexia, bulimia, and even addictions such as alcoholism. And uh, this has been shown in nice uh, controlled uh, trials. By the way, I should mention some of these, like eating disorders, anorexia. Uh, these are called disorders of assumption. A disorder of assumption means that when an anorexic patient looks in the mirror, who does she see? A thin individual? No, 
the anorexic looks in the mirror and sees a overweight, obese individual. So because that anorexic believes that they are overweight and obese, does that mean the therapy affirms them and says, yes, you are what you think you are? Why would that therapy be harmful? Because they're already under eating, and you tell them that, and they're going to under eat some more. And so the therapy for anorexia and bulimia is what we call cognitive behavioral therapy to help the person see things as they really are. And uh, this is, of course, an important element in something that's become more prominent than anorexia, which is also often a disorder of assumption where a person that is a biological male believes that they're actually a female. The solution is not to affirm them in their femaleness. The, the, the solution has to do with cognitive behavioral therapy in helping them to realize their actual biology. And uh, this is something that's, of course, very helpful. If you want to know more about those uh, details in our last EQ Summit, we dealt specifically on those issues of gender dysphoria that's become very common. It's so common that we have, uh, in every program, we have gender dysphoric individuals, uh, but we don't uh, have anorexics in any program. Anorexia is very minor now. Uh, in comparison. It's always been somewhat minor, but it's certainly uh, minor in comparison with that disorder of assumption uh, that is getting a lot of uh, um, media assistance and um, in, in having that disorder of assumption become uh, much more prominent. Uh, and uh, it was Dr. Uh, Michelle Critella um, who has done a lot of work in that area um, that uh, went into um, the, the science, the actual true science and the facts behind this. Um, and of course, we've had others uh, deal with the cognitive behavioral therapy on this. But fortunately, increasing emotional intelligence also helps normal people. Helps them think clearer, communicate more effectively, fosters unity in group settings, reduces polarizing statements, promotes a happier life, and all of this is accomplished without compromise or sacrificing the truth. In fact, one of the primary uh, uh, aspects of emotional intelligence is to look at what is true. Uh, and uh, then to, of course, align ourselves and our thoughts with the truth. So before we get into some of the thinking aspects, I'd like to mention some of the behavioral aspects that have been shown to improve EQ. And when people come to our program for depression and anxiety recovery, the first thing they notice, and of course what we're asking them to do and making them accountable, are behavioral changes. The behavioral changes will actually help them in their thought processes when we get to the thoughts, but we have to start out with the behavioral parts um, first. And one of the behavioral parts that we start out with has to do with the increasing evidence, body of evidence, that shows that the time we are spending on screens or digital devices is interfering with multiple things. This has been now shown in some very nice 
um, uh, trials, and a lot of science has been done on this recently. But the more time you spend on digital devices or screens, the more problems you are going to have with sleep, including making enough melatonin at night. Just using it a digital device an hour before bedtime is going to lower your melatonin levels. It's going to take you longer to fall asleep. You're going to be more likely to wake up in the middle of the night and not be able to go back to sleep. And when you do get up the next day, you're going to be groggier and you're going to want to delay your circadian rhythm clock, which means you want to continue to go to bed later and later. And that simply has to do with the use of screens, uh, particularly an hour before bedtime. There's something else that happens with screens. And studies show the more you look at images, the lower your self-worth is going to be. There's a reason why God had the second commandment. Thou shalt not do what? Have any graven images or any likeness of anything uh, as well. What was the principle behind that? God wanted to be worshipped in his genuineness, and he wants us to be genuine. And it turns out that if I were to investigate, pretty much everyone in this room, I would probably be able to easily find images of yourself. Where would I find those images? It would be on your Facebook <laughs> or social media or those sorts of things. And the problem is those images, as our photographer expert at Weimar that teaches a photography class in the college always states, no matter how good your lens, the image is actually at least somewhat distorted over what reality is. And so in other words, it's not genuine. And for those that sometimes the distortion of the lens actually makes them look better in images than they do in real life. What do we call those people? Photogenic. <laughs> These are the ones that become models <laughs> uh, or, uh, or do, you know, uh, or, or play somebody on TV or, or those sorts of things. And let me just give you an example. You know, uh, before COVID, I went to New Zealand and did some speaking there. And uh, I had a, a day off between uh, speaking. I was speaking primarily on the weekend, and I wanted to see one of the most beautiful places in the world. I had seen pictures of this, but it's a little hard to get to place in uh, southern New Zealand. Uh, it, there's two islands. There's a North Island and the South Island. And the South Island, uh, as beautiful as the North Island is, the South Island is even uh, more gorgeous and along the, uh, uh, the western side, there is a place in New Zealand called Milford Sound. It's a big fjord coming in. 5,000-foot cliffs in this sound, and it's in the middle of a rainforest. And so you have these drop-dead gorgeous waterfalls coming down into this beautiful sound. And as you're out there in a boat, there are dolphins that will leap in front of you, uh, leading your boat along. And uh, it's certainly one of those natural ways of getting a dopamine high. 
and uh, it is, it's a dopamine, unlike the dopamine highs that most people do in the false way, where it shoots up and then it shoots back down again, this dopamine high will stay up for a very long period of time. But unfortunately, there were two ladies in the front of the boat that were not allowing my dopamine high to occur. <laughs> they were in the front of the boat and they were arguing very loudly where everybody could hear their argument and they were not having a good time. And as we got close to one of the waterfalls, the captain of the boat slowed down uh, so that we could get some pictures. And in the midst of their argument, there in the front of the boat, they recognized what was happening. And they got out their device, they put their arm around each other, they smiled really big, and they took this picture. And before they started arguing again, they actually uploaded that picture to their Instagram account. And all of their friends immediately became jealous. Here I am working and slaving in my job, and those two are down there having a great time. <laughs> and then they went back and they started arguing again. <laughs> Images are not genuine. <laughs> And no one would have been jealous if they would have seen what was happening before the picture was taken and after the picture was taken. And you know, these images that people get jealous of, they don't realize that sometimes they took a thousand images to find the one that looks least like them, and that's the one they posted up there. <laughs> and so studies show the more you look at images, the lower your self-worth will be and the more unhappy you will be. Now, of course... We, we are attracted to social media because we can connect. But studies show that although at first you're attracted to connectedness, you actually begin to compare far more than you connect. And that's why study after study shows the more you're on social media, the more unhappy you become. Relationships also go down. You know, even having a relationship with someone on social media is not the same as face-to-face -face social interaction. And social media keeps us from these real social interactions. This is why the participants, you know, particularly in today's world where it's so driven by screens and things, and they get very upset at us at first because we're taking away all their screens. They're going to be electronically fasting for 10 days. And they're thinking, this is how I treat my depression and anxiety, is getting on my screens, and they're taking away my only treatment uh, for this. But they are amazed that in 10 days, not only are they feeling better, but they have developed closer friendships with everyone else in the program that's been there for just 10 days than what they even have in their families in many situations. This is why it's very good, you know, uh, our director of the program, uh, Linda, sometimes I'm invited over to her house for some sort of social event, but she has that pattern that when you walk into her house for any type of event, there's a bucket there and your device goes in that bucket. 
And the first one to grab their device out of the bucket is the one that does the dishes after the event. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you have a lot better social interactions at those events. And I would encourage you in your family events to not allow this thing to get in the way of the real social interactions. Also, it has an adverse effect on memory. This is pretty interesting studies, but we are running into problems, even in young people, called digital dementia. Digital dementia, actually people that are look up stuff on Google to find out the answer, studies show they're far less likely to remember that answer. And when there's a lot of information at our fingertips, all this information that swirls around us is actually far less likely to be learned permanently. And therefore, we have also found out that the more you are on screens, the more gullible you become. You're gullible because you don't have your memory stocked with absolute facts. And thus, when something is fed to you by a screen, you have a tendency to believe whatever it is that is put in front of you. And you don't realize, wait a minute, if I believe this, then what I know factually over here would have to be false, because you don't have your brain stocked with those absolute facts. They actually did a study on uh, those who were typing in 40 facts. Uh, this was just a very easy study to do. They were told 40 factual things. People typed them in. Half of the group were told that the computer would erase those things that you're typing in, those 40 facts. The other were not told that. They thought, well, if I'm typing it in, in my computer, I'll probably be able to remember it. And then they just took those two groups, and by the way, they could have had a third group. They've done this on other studies, a third group where you write it down. By the way, which group do you think you're going to remember more of? By writing it down, that three-dimensional aspect really helps. But when you're typing it in, in fact, a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to be able to store it if I'm writing it down. No, that's not true. I took handwritten notes of Chris Holland's great presentation this morning, and how do I store it? <clears throat> it's pretty easy. It's a one-click thing called take a picture of your notes. And, <laughs> and you can have it stored uh, in there. And, of course, you, remember the, you can remember the date that it was and that sort of thing and, and uh, mark it and very easily uh, go back to that. Uh, but uh, anyways, they were comparing the two that, that typed it in. The group that thought their... Um, uh, their information was going to be stored, they virtually could not remember any of those 40 facts. And they had a hard time recalling it. The group that thought it would be immediately erased, they were able to remember more of those facts, significantly more, because since they knew it was going to be erased, they increased their mental effort to, to store those facts in their brain. And it turns out it's easier to remember two things than it is one thing. And a lot of times when you're looking things up on Google, it's just one piece of isolated information that isn't necessarily associated. Uh, one of our professors, in fact, um, 
we have a, a high uh, acceptance into a U.S. and foreign medical schools. One of our, our uh, students just got accepted into the top medical school in Australia, um, actually. Uh, but uh, the MCAT exam, which is kind of an IQ test of the sciences once you learn those basic sciences, uh, is always trying to see what your scientific IQ is. The definition of IQ is your ability to solve an unfamiliar problem. And so they're coming up with unfamiliar problems that you've never seen before that can be solved if you really understand the science behind it. And our chemistry professor, who's, who's one of the amazing chemists in the world, I don't know of any other university where this is, um, uh, where the, the same one who teaches general chemistry also teaches organic chemistry, which also teaches biochemistry. She's, she's excellent in all of those fields, worked for the pharmaceutical industry for many years, and is known as one of the top chemists in our nation. But when she teaches chemistry concepts, she teaches a biblical concept along with that. And the, you might think, boy, it's enough to learn all this hard chemistry. Now she's teaching a biblical concept along with that? Well, when it comes to the MCAT exam, they'll see this never-before-seen problem, and they'll say, I don't know how to solve that. I've never seen that. And then they'll look at the type of problem it is, and they'll remember the biblical concept first. Then they'll remember the chemical concept, and then they'll solve the equation. And this is why we've had individuals just taking her chemistry courses, take an MCAT exam, and not miss a single question in all of the chemistry aspect of things. You know, it's 99.999 percentile, one of the reasons why we have that high acceptance. But it's because that memory is being stocked with factual information, and the designer of chemistry is also the designer of spiritual concepts, and these go together. And when you have a mind like Dr. Harris, it can really help students um, to understand things uh, far better. Attention spans are also adversely affected, and this has to do with an area of the frontal lobe called the anterior cingulate gyrus. It's your working memory. And in order to have a very good brain, you have to have a good working memory. This is where you're able to store what you've learned in that brain for at least a minute or two so it can be stored in the permanent sections of the brain uh, called the temporal lobe of the brain. And it turns out this is the area that improves with focused attention. Focused attention is at an all-time low. Studies show that when people get on their devices to do their homework, for instance, and this is, of course, a lot of the excuses of kids today, well, I've got to be on my screen because I've got to do my homework and my professor has assigned this. By the way, the, 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 the really advanced professors in understanding learning are going to shy away from that sort of thing in the future. Everyone was pulling people to devices and now, as a result of this study, they're realizing to really get an educated person, we have to pull them away from devices. But studies show that once they're on the screen to do their homework, they have fully the intentions of being there an hour to do their homework. But 99% of them, within five minutes, are no longer doing their homework. 
Why did they go away from their homework? They got distracted. How do you get distracted when you're on a screen? Well, guess what? The engineers know what you like when you're on that screen. And it may be something totally benign. They might realize that you like BMWs. And five minutes after you're on, there's a little BMW car that goes across the screen and said, are you aware of the newest BMW? And the letters and the numbers are given that are about ready to come out next year. Oh, wow, yeah, it won't hurt me to take a look at this just for a little bit. And then all of a sudden you get a little chat because someone else knows you're on the screen. And so a friend now starts chatting you in and then you get a push notification. Donald Trump said something about another woman. And you've got to go check that out. <laughs> uh, and so uh, this whole aspect of driven to distraction shrinks the anterior cingulate gyrus of the frontal lobe. And that starts to destroy working memory, but it has an additional problem, and that is the anterior cingulate gyrus is the area of our brain that also involves empathy and managing our emotions. The frontal lobe is involved in both IQ and EQ. And so if you can't pay attention, not only can you not learn, but you are going to have problems managing your emotions. And you are going to have some significant emotional problems coming your way. And then when the frontal lobe goes down, creativity goes down. It's interesting, we've known for a long time, the movie producers that make the most money and are the most sought after movie producers themselves do not watch entertainment television or movies because they know it's going to suppress their creativity. They might look at what someone else did for 90 seconds or so, but they're not going to sit there and watch the whole thing because that rapid scene of reference is gonna start shutting down their frontal lobe. I know uh, not too far away from here at a college uh, called Washington Adventist University, there was the head of the communications department, Joel Wheeler. He said he had a lot of students there who wanted to make it in the communications industry and they would be getting D's and F's in communication. And he would tell them, you need to go home, quit college and stop watching television and being on screens and devices for a whole year then you come back and take my class and things will be a lot different. And a lot of them did and they came back and they were getting straight A's. Their frontal lobe ability and communications had dramatically improved by fasting in regards to the media. Productivity also declines. The more we are on screens, a lot of people ask me, one of the most common questions I get as I travel around, is how is it that you're able to get so much done? You know, you write books, you run programs, you see patients, you speak at multiple places, you, um, you know, fly airplanes, you do all of these things. And it's actually pretty simple. Live a screen-free life <laughs> as much as possible. We'll get into digital minimalism here in a little bit. Uh, but um, that there's something spreading around the Weimar campus called digital minimalism that's really helping our students as well. And then finally, problem solving and decision making skills go down. Now if you look at that list up on the screen, 
Imagine if a drug came out that was supposed to help you in some way, shape, or form, but had all those adverse side effects. And imagine if the drug company never looked for those side effects, but only told you about the benefits of using that drug. And then later on, we found out that that drug had all of those side effects, and those drug, that drug manufacturer had an idea it would do that because they never allowed their own kids to use that drug. What would we say about that drug company? They are greedy. They are evil. And, you know, the media would rightly center in on the evils of that company and all the bad that they did. But, you know, the technology companies and what's gone forward in regards to smartphones and those sorts of things, the evidence is very clear it does that, but the media gives them a complete pass. They haven't, the world hasn't been able to give them a, a, a totally complete cast, pass because the studies are showing this, and the studies are showing it very clearly. So a couple of years ago, they came out and said, we're going to be responsible in the media now. We realize people can use these devices too long. And so after you're on your smartphone for about eight hours, it will say, you've been on your smartphone for eight hours a day. This smartphone is about ready to turn off. Press number one if you want to continue. Press number two if you are willing for it to turn off. And that's their responsibility. <laughs> That is not, uh, not responsible. And unfortunately, there's only one senator in the whole United States Senate that is really trying to change this whole thing. He can't get any senator to second any of his motions because the technology companies are, are uh, you know, the, uh, there's too much fear. Talk about fear that was done earlier. It's fear that when you go against the technology companies as far as what might happen to your political career, uh, and so he hasn't gotten anyone to do that. By the way, uh, he may be speaking at our EQ Summit uh, coming up because uh, he knows about all this data and he realizes our nation is deteriorating significantly as a result of the manipulation of technology companies. By the way, digital minimalism, our SA, student association leader who's been aware of this in part because he took my course called Optimize Your Brain, where we do this. And Optimize Your Brain at Weimar, you have to do all the things that help optimize your brain. It's a freshman class so that you can be very successful uh, throughout uh, the college career. And we get a lot of complaints from the freshmen at first. You know, there's an EFAS that's a part of it. They have to exercise so much. They have to work with their hands in three dimensions, and it seems to them that it would be taking a lot of time. But he noticed a significant benefit. So this year he had a voluntary aspect where the essay would actually enforce digital minimalism. And so everyone could take their smartphone to essay and it would be turned into a dumb phone. And they know how to do this. And they would actually choose, are there certain apps that you know you really need and you don't waste time. If you don't waste time ever in an app, and if it is something that's very helpful, they would allow that app to be on there. So for instance, some people who were new to Weimar and had a car, they wanted to have a GPS app still there. So they allowed them to have the GPS app. There was a Bible app 
We, they allowed them to have the Bible app. <laughs> uh, they allowed them to have uh, those sorts of apps. But <clears throat> within two minutes, the essay was so good at it, they would turn their smartphone into a dumb phone and those individuals would not use their device for more than one hour a day. And studies show that once you start using devices only usefully and less than one hour a day, those are the happiest, most productive people in all of the world. Uh, and uh, a good share, not the entire student body came forward and gave them their phones. It was a voluntary event, but a good share of the students did and they got their phones back, and what a difference uh, it is making on campus. You know, there's more fun things to do than ever before in human history, but studies show overstimulation eventually makes us less sensitive to dopamine, a neurotransmitter in our brain that plays a role in how we feel pleasure and motivation. And so studies are showing it's very important to limit behaviors that trigger strong amounts of dopamine release. This is why YouTube is one of those banned things on their device. Because once you get on a YouTube even helpful video, there'll be 10 different YouTube videos that are trying to come at you that are not as helpful, that might be stimulating and give you a good powerful laugh and a big dopamine surge, but it comes at a cost. And there wasn't really anything useful. Overstimulation, it does make us less sensitive to dopamine. So how should you decide? Simply regard whether it's highly pleasurable and or problematic for you and actually fast in that area and give it up and your neurotransmitter function will dramatically improve. Dopamine receptors will improve as well. Another area that we look at in the behavioral side of things is physical exercise. Physical exercise, as good as it is for your body to improve in fitness, it's actually better for your brain than it is your body. It improves neurotransmitter receptors and release. It improves cognitive function. It improves mood. And it also improves memory. And so we do before and after fitness testing. And, of course, they're, they're trying to get their steps in. Uh, we have step testing for all of our people in depression and anxiety recovery. We do also in Optimize Your Brain uh, because of the, the amount of steps you get in in a day, uh, particularly if it's for the purpose of fitness, will be related uh, to how well your, your cognitive capacity is later. And also working with your hands in three dimensions uh, helps out a great deal as well. But we also want to speak about the thoughts. And the influences in, on EQ are also related to genetic makeup. I'm going to speak about that in the next hour. Because if I were to boil down five aspects of emotional intelligence, um, one of them would be know your brain biochemistry and to respond appropriately to that nutritionally and otherwise. So we'll be speaking about that in the, in the next hour. Childhood experiences have a role to play. Current emotional support, and of course there's physical conditions such as lack of sleep, poor nutrition, and illness. But what actually has the most significance on our emotional intelligence is mentioned here. Our emotions are largely controlled by our what? Beliefs, our evaluation of events, the way we think about problems, and our silent self-talk. 
These are the moment-by-moment messages we give ourselves. And this aspect of looking at our thoughts and beliefs is an area we call cognitive behavioral therapy. There's the ABCs of cognitive behavioral therapy. The A is the activating event. Traditional psychotherapy takes us right in from the activating event to the emotional consequence. But Dr. Ellis and Dr. Beck, the discoverers of CBT, and by the way, all the traditional psychologists were into A to C thinking. Freud was into it, Carl Jung, Erickson, all of these people are A to C thinkers. By the way, they should not be taught as far as good psychology. In fact, in a lot of universities, you only learn about those men in the history of psychology. It could be mentioned in the history. But these theories actually have never been shown to be better than taking a placebo pill when put into practice. And so uh, they're really not to the scientific um, level. However, CBT has been shown to be far better than taking a placebo pill. And Dr. Ellis and Beck say A to C thinking is incorrect. In fact, these are the words from Dr. Ellis. He says, it's crooked thinking to believe this way. Believing that we have little or no ability to influence our feelings and that events and situations directly cause our emotions and behavior is indeed crooked. And there's a word that's used repeatedly in scripture that means bent or crooked. If I regard what? Iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not what? Not hear me. So the, the root word there is iniquity. And if you have crookedness in your heart, that's really talking about crooked thoughts. And the psalmist says the Lord will not hear you. Now it's not because God doesn't want to hear us. But often we as Christians don't think very much about the limitations of God. God actually tells us in his word that he is limited. In both the Old and New Testament, it says God cannot. What is it that God cannot do? He can't tell a lie. Now, he's a free moral agent. I suppose he could if he wanted to, but he puts truth above himself, meaning that he's never going to be where lies or deceptions are at, So unless we are willing to get rid of our own lies and deceptions, he's not going to be able to help us. This is what the psalmist is saying. Now, once we're willing to get our thoughts straightened out, he is willing to help us. In fact, when our thoughts do get straightened out as a result of thinking true thoughts, what does he call that? The emotional consequence is called comfort. The spirit of truth first resides in the heart, and thus the Holy Spirit becomes the comforter. And uh, that's what uh, Christ was explaining to his disciples. So we still have the activating event. Then we have the belief, and if the belief is true and accurate, it will powerfully influence the emotional consequence significantly. In fact, once you get good at this, it's far quicker than popping a Xanax pill and helping you feel better. And it can do far more powerful effects than the false ways of altering the way we feel. Your feelings result from the messages you give yourself. 
And your thoughts have much more to do with how you're feeling and what is actually happening in your life. Let me give you an example of that. Paul and Silas, they were taken against their will. They were beaten with rods. They had been doing good in the community, but the authorities were threatened by them. And so their backs are laid open. They're thrust into prison. They're not put on a nice floor like this, but it's an irregular dirt floor with stones and rocks in it. Their feet are put up in stocks. And there they were, crying uncontrollably in prison and saying, why us, Lord? Some of you know the story. The first part of the story was true. Second part wasn't true. What were they doing? They had happy looks on their faces, singing praises to God. And that was even without the nice piano player that you guys had for your singing. (laughs) Why could they be that way? Because their thoughts had much more to do with how they were feeling than what was actually happening in their life. And they weren't thinking pop psychology thoughts. Pop psychology would just say, imagine you're on Virginia Beach. That would have worked for no more than 1.2 seconds. (laughs) Reality would have come in, and it would have even hurt even more. But they were thinking true and accurate thoughts, and their true and accurate thoughts were so powerful that even under the most adverse situation, they could have a stable emotional countenance and actually be singing praises to God. And of course, this is one of the differences between Eastern meditation and Western meditation. Recently, an analysis was done by the American Medical Association on Eastern meditation and printed in the journal uh, American Medical Association Internal Medicine. And they looked at 18,000 research citations of Eastern meditation, such as mindfulness, that all seemed to promote it leading health and educational organizations to promote these practices. And when they actually looked at the data that came forward, this was their conclusion. We found low evidence or no effect or insufficient evidence of any effect of Eastern meditation programs on positive mood, attention, substance use, eating habits, sleep, or weight. They went on to say, we found no evidence that meditation programs were better than any active treatment, such as physical exercise, cognitive behavioral therapy, or medications. So why is it that when you're not getting better, you're being referred to an Eastern meditation individual? It might make you feel, it's, it's very might, might you make you feel better short term, but what is it doing to you long term? By the way, one of the promoters of this looked at the studies in the last 20 years, and of course there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, meaning stories on the merits of mindfulness meditation that are really not in books. But once again, the conclusion of a different group was no robust scientific evidence that mindfulness has any substantial positive effect on our minds and behaviors. 
One of the issues with this type of meditation is Eastern meditation teaches you to be non-judgmental regarding your thoughts. You are not to judge anything. You're just supposed to accept it and bring it in and then try to be mindful and focused. And one of the teachers of mindfulness meditation who had been teaching uh, Zen meditation therapies was so convinced that it, pro- that it was helpful that she ended up doing five different randomized controlled trials. By the way, when you, when you don't have one randomized controlled trial come out and you believe it's true, you're going to do another one that's larger. And when that one doesn't come out, you're going to do another one because you're thinking it was just bad statistics that led to this. And here's what she said. The reputation of mindfulness on moral behavior is immaculate. However, I have been doing Zen meditation for more than 10 years and wondered whether I had become a better person. Five randomized controlled trials were done where participants who meditated displayed a weaker tendency. See if I can get to the bottom of my reading here. Here we go. A a weaker tendency toward repairing the damage after causing harm to a friend by losing their bicycle. So they lost a friend's bicycle, and she was looking at whether they were going to repair the damage. She found out after doing Eastern meditation, they had a much weaker tendency towards repairing the damage when they had done harm to somebody else. Then she looked at meat-eating participants who watched a video depicting the suffering of animals. And she found out after they meditated, they reported lower levels of bad conscience when they had meditated, which in turn was related to weaker intentions to reduce their future meat consumption. And so after doing these five randomized trials... Her conclusion was this. We found that a brief mindfulness, and sorry about this, it's coming up, here it is. We found that a brief mindfulness exercise even attenuated moral reactions. So what was her conclusion? Her conclusion was that we should change the way we're teaching meditation so that it's taught in an ethical construct. If you're teaching meditation in an ethical construct, it's no longer Eastern meditation, however. What is meditation with an ethical construct? That's called Western meditation. And Western meditation is prayer and a devotional life. And every time we look at devotional material like the Bible... And we claim those promises out loud to God in prayer. Or we ask God if we're in compliance with the command and let him convict us if we're not and make a commitment to change our life. We not only feel better at the end of that exercise, but we have become a better person. And that's actually a very profound form of cognitive behavioral therapy. Because cognitive behavioral therapy is replacing our distorted, irrational thoughts with rational thoughts. 
Eastern meditation and CBT are diametrically opposed. CBT is well known to be the gold standard in psychotherapy, which means we do need to judge our thoughts as to whether they're right or not and replace those thoughts and not just accept any thought that comes into our head in a non-judgmental way and try to feel good about it. So I'm going to go over to a, um, another important realm. Uh, so I wanted you to understand the importance of CBT, but I'm going to uh, tell you about one aspect of CBT that's become quite popular today uh, called emotional reasoning. That's one of the distorted thoughts. And there was an individual who had significant issues with emotional reasoning. What is emotional reasoning? It's that your feelings don't lie. And our feelings do often lie. This is why we have to elevate them to our frontal lobe. But when we think our feelings don't lie, we'll often go into quick fix ways to help ourselves feel better. Very high IQ people can go into this, and one of the high IQ people who was an emotional reasoner was known as Solomon. I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. And he went into his experience in verses 2 through 9. He saw people participating in alcohol that seemed to be having a good time, so he went into alcohol. He went into the drugs of his day, opium. And then he went into this. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from what? Any joy. What was his eyes supposed to be kept from that he was not keeping them from? Women. What do we call that today? call it pornography, but in his case, it was live pornography. And of course, one wife was not enough. Five wives were not enough. hundred wives were not enough. Three hundred concubines were not enough. Where did it lead him? Therefore, I hated life. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Therefore, I went about to cause my heart to despair. In a commentary in the book, Conflict and Courage, has stated this, many envied the popularity and abundant glory of Solomon, thinking that of all men, he must be the what? The most happy. Why? He had the most beautiful woman from every ethnicity known to mankind. He had the most beautiful palace. He had wonderful servants at his beck and call. He was the wealthiest man. In fact, Forbes magazine demonstrated this. He would make um, Bill Gates seem like a poor person um, in comparison to how much money he had. That's how much money he had compared to the global monetary supply. So he had all of this wealth. But amid all that glory of artificial display, the man envied is the one to be what? Most pitied. His countenance is dark with despair. All the splendor about him is but a mockery of the distress and anguish of his thoughts as he reviews his misspent life in seeking for happiness through what? Indulgence and selfish gratification of every desire. By his own bitter experience, Solomon learned the 
emptiness of a life that seeks in earthly things its highest good. Gloomy and soul-harassing thoughts troubled him night and day. For him, there was no longer any joy of life. If you don't have any joy of life, what are you suffering from? You're suffering from major depression. But not only that, no longer any joy of life or peace of mind. If you don't have any peace of mind, what are you suffering from? Anxiety. And the future was dark with despair. By the way, Solomon had a prophet come to him around this time, told him the kingdom was going to be taken away from him, and he began to analyze how he got to where he got, and he turned his life around. If there's hope for Solomon to turn his life around, there's hope for anyone to turn their life around. But unfortunately, he was participating in the false ways of altering the way we feel. And here's the problem with these false ways. You can never get enough of what you don't need. Why is that? Because what you don't need will never satisfy you. And studies have actually demonstrated this. This was a randomized controlled study. Knowing what I know, I would have said it was an unethical study, but these men apparently were not knowledgeable on it. And, of course, a lot of talk is done about sex and have it as often as you want, as long as it's consensual, and even have it with yourself and all of those sorts of things. And so they actually put it to the test where the control group was watching regular TV and regular magazines, which I would say is not a good control group. And the other control group, 150 men and women, were exposed to pornographic videos and magazines, and in just six weeks, less interested and less attracted to their partner if they had one, more self-absorbed, anxiety went up considerably, less empathy for others around them, diminished ability to foresee consequences, and began to live in a very self-centered world. Their emotional intelligence began to plummet in just Six weeks, and they began to shut down emotionally. Dr. Zillman, one of the study's authors, after looking at other data as well as his own, said the negative effects of pornography on emotional intelligence have been more consistently proven than the links between smoking and lung cancer. We know that link is tight, but there's even a tighter link, and that is the false ways of altering the way we feel that is so prevalent today Um, through pornography and other means. But the problem is, of course, related to the frontal lobe. When we're involved in these things, frontal lobe suppression eventually occurs. There's other things that can cause it as well, and studies clearly show when the frontal lobe goes down, depression and or anxiety is coming your way, and if it's going to get better, your frontal lobe circulation has to go up. James says no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by his own evil feelings. But the problem is feelings can lie. So what do we do about this? Jonathan Martin says feelings are much like waves. We can't stop them from coming, but we can choose which one to serve. And we choose the one that's based on what is true and accurate. 
and the founder of the Democratic Party in America said this, don't bite at the bait of pleasure until you are sure there is what? No hook beneath. By the way, this is important. It would be well to memorize it. This is one of my main five points in emotional intelligence. But don't bite at the bait of pleasure until you are sure there is what? No hook beneath. But, you know, the amazing thing is people are fascinated by things that have supposed benefits but also might have significant risks. And this is why... They like to argue about things like alcohol. Alcohol has some resveratrol in it, you know? It might actually help us prevent heart disease to some extent. And they'll go into some of the benefits of alcohol. But there are significant hooks with alcohol. And you can't experience all of the benefits without experiencing some of the adverse effects and sometimes significant adverse effects. And this is why they like to argue about caffeine. Yes, caffeine suppresses uh, the adenosine receptors in the frontal lobe, like, so it makes you more likely to gossip. But isn't it going to give you more energy to accomplish more cognitive things? No, it actually isn't. And this is why the whole issue of marijuana, all of the issues related to the benefits of marijuana, and we can just get those benefits by getting the CBD without the THC. By the way, you won't find CBD alone. (laughs) There's going to be THC with it. And so, but yet they ignore the many things that only have benefits and no risks. Do you think there are more things that have benefits and risks or more things that just have benefits without risks that God has in this world? there are thousands more substances that have benefits without risks. But humanity is narrow-minded. They want to just look at the things that have the benefits and the risks, and they ignore all of the mountains of evidence and research of the things that only have benefits but no hooks at all. God has given us so many things that can be helpful without any harm whatsoever. But yet here we are, biting at the bait of pleasure when we know there's a hook beneath it. That's emotional reasoning and will result in significant issues and significant problems down the road. The power of right thought is more precious than the golden wedge of Ophir. And Christ said this, ye shall what? know the truth. By the way, that's not just a knowledge of it. That's day by day, moment by moment, intimately involved with the truth. How do we know it's intimate? Every time the Bible says no, uh, it, it usually is from the same root word where it says, Adam knew Eve, and they shook hands. Is that what the Bible says? Adam knew Eve, and what was the result? Eve conceived. What type of knowledge is that? It's intimate knowledge, intimate association. And Christ says, ye shall know the truth. In other words, if we're intimate with it, day by day, moment by moment, what will be the result? The truth shall make you free. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we're just so thankful that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that you know what we need. We pray that the mind of Christ may be in our hearts and in our minds, 
Thank you, Father, for giving us this knowledge. Help us to use it in order to hasten your return. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.